Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. So welcome to May's edition of Recharge, the podcast of Battery Materials Review. Thanks again for tuning in. There's some really great stuff in this edition, even if I do say so myself. We've got two featured interviews with Suzanne Shaw, Roskill's graphite guru, who speaks a bit about her outlook for the industry in the near term and the longer term. And we discuss the nickel market with Yoni Lukaroinen, the chief executive of Terra Farme, Europe's largest nickel producer. We've got four focus articles in this month's review. We include the first, despite the fact that West Farmer's approach for Kidman resources came in May, but we decided it would be rude not to discuss it. We discuss the likelihood of a competing bid and ask what industry players are seeing in the sector that investors are not. In fact, that thematic is a key one for this month's review, because our second article looks at offtake agreements. Given that there were, count them, eight offtake agreements in lithium and graphite announced in April. We discuss the key features of the offtake structures, which differ between materials. It's obvious that the industry sees a shortage of material in the future if they want to tie up supply, but equity valuations don't seem to be pricing that in at the moment. Another article discusses Umicore's profit warning on cathode materials and asks whether these current headwinds are a buying opportunity for raw materials producers. You probably don't have to be a genius to work out what our conclusion is. But it's interesting that while raw materials stocks sold off on the profit warning, battery producers did not. Why? Finally, we talk about the issue of battery fires and ask whether these have the potential to disrupt the battery event. While they're getting a lot of headlines at the moment, actually they're quite rare given the sheer number of lithium-ion batteries that have been made. There are technologies for storage in particular that are less prone to fires than NMC batteries, but they cost more. So it comes back to the trade-off between cost and benefit. You can read about any of these articles in more detail in the May issue of Battery Materials Review, available on our website at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Moving on to this month's news flow now, and it's been a busy month with 28 news updates, 6 technology updates, 26 exploration updates, and 41 other company updates. In raw materials, we reported on Galaxy Resources' quarterly results, which once again hardly blew the doors off. A key issue for Galaxy, as for many early-stage producers across the battery materials space, has been a failure to hit forecast metallurgical recovery levels. Galaxy's target is 64% recovery, itself down from the original 70% targeted in the Mount Catlin DFS. But in the last nine quarters, it's never got anywhere close to that level. And that's had a big impact on both output and costs. And Galaxy is by no means the only producer that's having trouble reaching its designed recovery levels either. Sticking with raw materials, we also discussed the Singshan nickel plant in Indonesia in this issue. The $700 million plant is scheduled to start production in 16 to 18 months. Now, given that it hasn't received its environmental permit yet, that timeline already looks strained. Given the relative lack of success of ramp-ups with high-pressure acid leach technology, I think you've got to take these production forecasts with a pinch of salt. And if you do, that's got significant implications for nickel supply-demand balances, because the market is rather counting on that project for new supply, and if it doesn't arrive on schedule, there's likely to be a bit of a gap. 
It's only been the last 12 months that high nickel content batteries have started to be manufactured in substantial quantities, but that trend is now really starting to take off. The market has filled in nickel supply by destocking LME inventories, but they can only last for so long, and without new Class 1 nickel supply, there could be a significant market deficit. This is particularly relevant given our next piece of news, which is that CATL has announced that it started mass production of NCM811 batteries. Obviously, this is important for nickel, but also lithium, because high nickel batteries require lithium hydroxide as their precursor rather than lithium carbonate. We know that SK Innovation and LG Chem both delayed rollout of NCM811 last year, so it will be interesting to see when they start mass production of this chemistry and how fast demand for it takes off. Moving out of nickel, the French oil company Total has announced that its subsidiary SAFT plans to establish a JV with China's Chaning Group to make batteries for EVs, bikes and energy storage. The JV plant is expected to have capacity of 5.5 gigawatt hours per annum. Elsewhere in batteries, it's handbags at 10 paces as LG Chem sues SK Innovation in the US. LG alleges that SK hired 77 of its US employees in an effort to get sensitive economic information about its battery technology, an allegation that SK denies. Finally, in the battery space, interesting to see that despite Umicore's profit warning that cited weak cathode demand in Asia, the Asian battery makers all reported reasonable Q1 results. CATL and BID had a significant rise on a year-on-year basis, as did LG Chem, although its results were down quarter-on-quarter due to the impact of storage fires in Korea. SK Innovation reported a narrower operating loss on volume growth in its battery division. While things seem to be going quite well in Asia at the moment, the same can't really be said for Tesla, which reported disappointing sales for Q1 and then compounded that with an earnings miss which shocked the market. Despite weaker-than-expected deliveries, the company stood by its 2019 sales guidance. The solar business didn't have a great quarter, and home storage has been impacted by diversion of batteries to the Model 3. In addition, the company's vacillated on what to do with its branch network, shed four board members, and pushback launch of its e-truck to 2020. And let's not even get into the issues with Panasonic. Even though it's not all great in Tesla land at the moment, one thing we have learned is not to write them off too soon. In the storage space, Wood Mackenzie forecasts that grid-scale storage should increase 13-fold to hit 158 gigawatt hours by 2024, which would be huge. And given the ongoing concerns about stability in lithium-ion batteries, we wonder if Pivot Power and Red T might have the answer. The companies are going to cooperate on a hybridised lithium-ion and vanadium flow storage solution in Oxford, UK. Elsewhere on the technology side, two stories caught our eye particularly this month. First is a study by the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute published in Nature Communications, which discusses the replacement of cobalt oxide in lithium-ion batteries by vanadium disulfide. It's very early stage, but could be interesting. Second is work by the Swiss tech company Innerlith, which believes it has found the world's first 1,000 watt-hours per kilogram battery, which would give an EV range of over 1,000 kilometres. The new battery uses what the company calls low-cost materials, and a pilot plant in Germany is planned for the near future. Moving on to company news, and in the exploration space, i like to flag a couple of news items. First of all, the maiden inferred resource by DNI Resources on its Voetsara graphite project in Madagascar 
and Hexagon Resources updated MRE on the Macintosh Graphite project in Western Australia. In lithium, Millennial Lithium had an updated MRE for its Pastus Grandis brine project in Argentina and Savannah Resources for its Hard Rock project in Portugal. In other materials, Element 25 upgraded its MRE by 34% for the Butcher Bird Manganese project in Western Australia, while Tando Resources updated on the SBD Vanadium project in South Africa. Jervois Mining, which has already taken out M2 Cobalt, announced the friendly all-share acquisition of eCobalt Solutions, valuing that company at approximately 60 million Canadian dollars. There were a lot of production results and earnings this month. A recurring theme, as I've already mentioned, was weaker-than-planned recovery, with Syro Resources and Graphite, Galaxy, as already discussed, and Pilbara Minerals, all reporting lower-than-targeted recoveries in their calendar Q1 results. In end-use markets, we'd flagged the concern about the impact of the Chinese subsidy changes on EV demand last month, and March is kind of a treading water month as a result. We need to see the impact on Chinese EV demand of the subsidy changes over the next few months, which will be critical to 2019 EV demand outcomes. Away from EVs, Gartner published its 2019 forecast, which suggests global mobile phone sales will fall by 0.5% and there'll be another year of stagnation in the computing device market. In midstream, Chinese lithium battery output was robust in March, up 17% year-on-year, and apparent consumption growth ticked up for the quarter. New data allow us to compare lithium-ion battery exports for key countries, and we see a substantial slowdown in Japanese net exports over the past 18 months as production has failed to keep up with domestic demand. In upstream, our Australian three-port spodumene exports index were roughly flat for the month. In lithium carbonate, China remained a net exporter, while Korean net imports hit a record level, and Japanese net imports were also robust. In hydroxide, Asian demand was also strong and net exports were high, but we do have concerns that Japanese demand could only be a restocking event and there is thus the potential for that to peter out and stocks to build up in coming months. In cobalt, Chinese net imports were very weak in March, but with the move in cobalt prices in April indicating a restocking and Katanga exports due to restart, we are a bit wary about the price outlook on near-term supply potential. In April, raw material prices were mixed. Cobalt bounced with LME cobalt up 15% and Chinese cobalt sulfate prices up 12%, but vanadium pentoxide continued to fall on lower than expected demand from the steel industry. LME-based metal prices were also pretty weak across the board. In equities, the wider market was up for the month of April, but our vanadium basket played catch-up and was down 20%. Our rare earth and cobalt equity baskets were also weak, down 8% and 7% respectively. Our hard rock lithium basket was down 4%, with our brine basket only down 1%, and our graphite basket fell 2%, but still looks significantly undervalued versus the commodity. More details, of course, in this month's Battery Materials Review, which you can subscribe to via our website. It's currently on a special offer of 12 issues for the price of 10 for a limited time only. So that's all of the key news flow for this month in the world of battery materials. Last week, we were lucky enough to sit down with Suzanne Shaw from Roskill to chew the fat on the graphite market. 
Roskiel is one of the consultants that's been covering the battery raw materials markets the longest. And within that, it's produced 11 editions of its report on the global graphite industry and will publish the 12th in June this year. Suzanne Shaw is Deputy Manager of Roskill's Industrial Minerals and Chemicals Division and has been an analyst in the graphite sector for around 10 years. Given our excitement about graphite, we're really pleased that she's agreed to talk to us today. Sue, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. And uh, we'll just run straight into the questions. Graphite prices seem to be holding up quite well at the moment compared to other battery raw material prices. What's your outlook for graphite prices over the rest of 2019 and into the longer term? So current prices are relatively high, especially compared to where they were this time two years ago. And it's worthwhile just looking at what's happened since then. So the prices were quite low for a very long time. They didn't move from a low for around 15 months and started to pick up at the end of 2017. Several reasons. The EV boom hadn't really taken off as it had been predicted, and China was sitting on a large amount of overcapacity. But then in late 2017 and and early last year, we saw this pricing dynamic change and prices rose considerably. That was on the back of strengthening demand coming from the lithium-ion battery industry, from demand increases from electric vehicles and energy storage. But more importantly, it was because of the plant closures in China from environmental inspections and widespread across many industries and plant closures in terms of flake and the downstream spherical graphite production. So prices rose because of these two reasons, and we saw high prices throughout last year and continuing into this year. But there has been some fallback, mainly because of these reopening Chinese plants. But also in the past month, we've seen perhaps prices slide as material from the rest of the world has continued to ramp up at quite a high pace from Sire and other large producers now. Supply seems to be growing faster than demand at the moment. And this is something we're likely to see throughout the rest of 2019, especially as in the short term, we're seeing some issue from the temporary downturn in demand in China from electric vehicles as the incentives are being changed and remodeled. We're seeing perhaps some more short term declines or or flat prices through 2019, certainly not many increases. But in the long term, we will expect prices to climb with rising demand. It really depends on the timing of new projects and how they can match their supply output to this demand rise. So China's moved to a net import position in flake graphite over the past few months. Is this a demand issue or a supply issue or a little bit of both? So I think it's both, really. The main thing you have to remember is that China dominates the lithium-ion battery manufacturing chain. Everything from raw material graphite and the spherical graphite processing right through to the nanomaterials, the battery components, and and the batteries themselves. Japan and South Korea are also very big players, but they're mainly, especially in the high-performance electric vehicle battery market. But most of the growth forward will be from China for its domestic and export markets. It's no surprise, really, that China is looking to import from um, foreign sources of supply with this huge amount of growth expected. So on the production side, we see small and medium-sized flake sizes that are preferred for use in batteries. They are the sizes that China has traditionally had in some abundance. But China has several problems. Uh, One is that its reserves are getting deeper and harder to mine. It's not running out of battery-grade graphite, but it's certainly using up its more economic deposits quite quickly. On the other hand, it's also very active in its new exploration and project development. 
many of the mines are, are that are large scale are state owned, so it's quite quick for them to um, to bring those into development. But it's also suffering from increasing labour costs, energy costs, and most importantly, of course, rising environmental costs. So if you have rest of world producers looking to increase output with the specific aim of feeding into China's battery market, and if they can be competitive with domestic sources, then it's it's not really a surprise that China's looking to import that material. So last year, BTR, which is the largest anode materials producer in China, started to take material from Syrah. And uh, China's imports have increased considerably from around 20,000 tonnes in 2017 to around 63,000 tonnes last year. They took considerable amount from Mozambique, from Syria, but also from Madagascar as well, although some of that will be larger sizes, not for batteries. So are these Chinese companies fully committed to these new imports or are they just testing the waters? That's the question we have to ask. We know that China has a strong position on price and it's clear that it can dominate its position at the moment, at least in terms of where it buys material and the price it might pay for that. In African projects are looking really promising for potential supply in the future into China. Not only is Africa in a really good geographical location, but it also has very low cost labour. And China has really looked to invest in, in China in infrastructure and across many industries, uh, many mineral industries over the last few years. There was a, a forum in China last year that came up with a Beijing action plan, what might happen in, in Africa for China's influence on Africa and its investment. And it's looking to focus on a whole host of, of infrastructure, health, education projects. It's made a real long-term commitment. And there's also zero tariffs on trade at the moment into China from Africa. So this really is laying the groundwork for increased foreign sources of raw material, including graphite. You touched briefly on the situation with Chinese graphite supply. What is this sort of specific issue with regards to production cuts due to environmental issues? So as with many other industries, the Chinese government has really, really looked to control the pollution that's coming out from graphite. And graphite has been quite bad in terms of its pollution in the past because of its use of strong acids, other reagents that are very bad for the environment. China has taken this really seriously. So we've seen a number of production cuts through 2016 and 17. And then last year in June and October, we saw two more look-back rounds of inspections across plants. And these are across mainly the spherical plants that have been producing in Shandong and Hilijiang, but also some of the flake processing for other applications as well. And at the moment, we're seeing mainly controls on wastewater and how that's being affected and to try and stop you know, the reagents getting into the wastewater. In the future, we could see more of an impact being seen on, on air pollution and trying to control particulate matter that hasn't really been tackled very much yet. We're also expecting to see more closures happening in other areas outside of the main production centres. Now, we know that the Ministry of Environmental Protection has said that they are not weakening their resolve on environmental protection anytime soon, and we're expecting more closures to happen. We are also seeing that this cleanup of the environment is having a positive impact on the profits of some of these smaller companies and the larger state-owned companies as well. It's not just about pollution control, it's about increasing the efficiency and improving the profit margin as well. So one of the reasons that investors can't seem to get comfortable with graphite 
is the sheer volume of known graphite projects. Given the likely demand growth for graphite that you see coming from electric vehicles, do you expect to see a market deficit in natural graphite? And if so, sort of what period are you looking at for that to start to emerge? Okay, so obviously this is a rather tricky situation. We're forecasting very, very rapid growth in electric vehicles. And Roskill has always been quite conservative in its demand forecasts, but we're still seeing around perhaps 19% per year growth in demand for flake, graphite, for raw material flake, maybe even up to 25% in our high case model over the next decade. You know, there are lots of other analysts out there with much higher growth rates than that. So I think even if you said it's the 19% level, that's still a very, very strong amount of demand that can support a large amount of supply increase. So at the moment, we have a very large number of projects waiting in the wings. In Africa alone, we've got around 1.1 million tonnes per year of capacity scheduled to come on. That's not including what's happening with SARA's expansion plans. So there are um, promising projects in Madagascar, Malawi, Mozambique, Namibia, Tanzania. Then we're also seeing perhaps another half a million tonnes from projects in Canada, Australia and, and Europe and, and other places. So there's going to be probably enough supply to meet demand in the long term. But in terms of a deficit, positive negative in the supply-demand balance and, and therefore prices, it's really about the ability for those companies to reach production and be competitive with China, but a time when the market needs it. So it's about timing those projects coming on for when there is that demand necessary. In the short term, we're likely to see perhaps an increase in supply that is above demand. As as I've said, there's this slight drop-off from electric vehicle incentives at the moment, plus Sire is looking to really ramp up its production still throughout 2019. But in the long term, we could see a move to a more cyclic situation where you have rising demand, in increasing prices, and then new projects coming online. And as I said, it's about how prices will rise will depend on the lag time between getting those projects to market in time for the new demand. So there's going to be sort of like investment cycles when prices will go up and, and obviously probably equities will follow. And then, you know, when more supply will come in, prices will sort of fall. So it's going to be about timing going forward. Yes, absolutely. And uh, what do you see as the major barriers to entry for the spherical graphite production in China? China is the largest producer of spherical graphite. It's the only commercial producer. It produces by traditional methods. So using hydrofluoric, hydrosulfuric acid, very strong reagents. As I said, these are very bad for the environment. And one of the main considerations for Chinese expansions going forward is this limitation from the environmental inspections. If we look at rest of world developments that are trying to compete with China, they need to be able to produce at um, a competitive price, but they also need to be able to do this in an even more environmentally friendly way. So you cannot produce using these reagents without putting in place very, very expensive ways of dealing with them after their use. So what some of the projects have done is to look at developing perhaps thermal-only methods of production or perhaps using ammonia or other reagents. You know, there are lots of different things being developed and they're all proprietary, but they're all trying to offer something that is a different environmentally friendly method. Now, the question remains is, can they do that at a cost that is competitive with China? One thing they can perhaps do is to improve the yield to increase 
the amount of, of graphite you're getting through the grinding and shaping stages. Now, at the moment, the traditional yield is only 30 to 70%. So that would be one way of increasing profits. One other thing is to find a home for your, your waste fines. So at the moment, some of these fines from the Chinese projects are being sold into the recarburizing industry and they're not really getting a very good price for those because it's quite a, a very a low margin industry. It's a very competitive industry. So if, if we could find another use for some of this fines material, then that could help to increase profits as well. Some projects also purify before they grind and some projects do it the other way around. So if you're looking at supplying fines to an industry, perhaps that has some impact as well on what industry you're going to supply. It all comes down to, can you be competitive with China? The price at the moment is still falling for spherical graphite being exported from China. It's just fallen probably below $2,700 per tonne. It's very, very competitive. Now, a lot of investors feel that synthetic graphite can substitute for natural graphite in batteries going forward. Do you think that's the case? And just sort of to get an idea, what's the natural to synthetic ratio in anodes now? And what do you think it's going to be going forward? Okay, so at the moment, synthetic and natural are both used fairly evenly. This, we think there's slightly more synthetic use than natural. Looking at it from the perspective of how much is used by the anode material producers. If you look at it from a raw material perspective, actually the amount of natural graphite is suddenly a lot higher because you're looking at that large amount of waste material being produced through the processing stage. Now, going forward, we're expecting synthetic graphite percentages to increase. There is, however, room for both synthetic and natural graphite because the industry is so large and the growth expected is so large that there's room for companies on both sides. Now, the reason that we're expecting some of this synthetic, higher rates of synthetic growth is because this material is actually quite well suited to the job. It's high in carbon, it's low on impurities because of the way it's made. It's very consistent, which is something that the battery producers really, really like. But the reason that, that synthetic graphite not been used as widely as perhaps it could be in the past is because of the very high price that it reaches because of the way that it's processed and its manufacturing stages are very long. It takes months and months to produce synthetic graphite. In reality, a blend of natural and synthetic graphite is used along with other carbon and non-carbon materials. Which raw material you, you use comes down to the cost and also the availability. And it also depends on the application that you're using for your battery. So some blends might give you fast charging, others might promote a longer battery life, for example. There's a trade-off and the recipes for these anode blends are obviously proprietary to the battery manufacturers. And you touched on cost. I mean, what would be the, the cost of a synthetic graphite to an anode manufacturer? So it is considerably more, especially at the moment with the falling prices of spherical graphite, but synthetic graphite could be as high as maybe five, six, seven thousand dollars per ton. Okay, so double or, or, or nearly up to treble the cost. Yeah, it depends on what you're coating with. You know, coating actually could bring this up to much, much higher levels that you can add thousands of dollars on for coatings as well. So it really depends on what your application is and how you're using it. But certainly synthetic graphite is considerably more than, than natural. But also you have to have the cost of um, you know, availability and, and shipping and, and things like that. Then it, there may be other reasons to be using synthetic. Also, it's used in more high-performance batteries for electric vehicles quite widely as well. 
as an investor evaluating a graphite project, a flake graphite project, what are the three most important industry-specific things that I should be looking at from your point of view? So for the battery industry, specifications for the graphite are obviously very important. So the fundamentals of carbon grade, but also impurity levels. You really want to be cutting out metal impurities for use in batteries. Battery manufacturers are very demanding. The anodes can be quite temperamental. So you need the material to be good, good quality. And that is one of the areas where it competes with synthetic graphite, is this consistency of quality. The second thing that you need for a good flow project is the, the size distribution. So it's not just about the battery grade, but also, you know, what other flake sizes you're getting and what applications you can find for those and the prices you can make. Maybe batteries are your major area of profit, but you mustn't forget the other types of graphite that you have and where they can be used and, and getting the maximum profit from them. And then I think perhaps the third thing that's quite important would be the team behind the graphite project, having experienced members who can fix processing hitches quite quickly and optimize the flow sheet and, and you know, making sure that what you're producing is competitive in China. Okay, thanks very much. That's really interesting, particularly the point about the management team. The final question then, sort of coming from left field a little bit, we hear a lot about the growth of silicon anotechnology. Do you think that's a concern going forward for, for graphite use in anodes? So it could be in the long term. At the moment, silicon is still a fairly emerging market. Now, it's used um, quite widely across many of the, the battery manufacturers. However, it still only accounts for a few percent in most anodes, maybe up to 10% at most. We know that Tesla's batteries are using silicon, for example. And silicon is brilliant. It has a, a really high theoretical capacity, but it, you can't add it directly to the anode. Like flake graphite, it can swell and increase in volume but it increases at a much, much higher rate. So it can increase up to maybe 300% in volume compared to maybe 10% for graphite. And that volume change can destroy the anode. So at the moment, you have to host the silicon in a graphite matrix to limit the impact of the swelling. So there's lots and lots of research and development at the moment to try and find ways to add more silicon. And some of these are using perhaps nanomaterials to help mitigate some of the changes in volume and, and try and control the silicon. There are, there are lots of things going on. And I think that it's something that researchers are really trying to tackle. But for the moment, at least, we're just seeing kind of normal market growth. But in the future, if these problems can be tackled, then silicon could have much more of an impact on the graphite market. So don't panic, but keep an eye on it. Absolutely. Suzanne Shaw, thanks very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much. Moving on from graphite now. And last week, we also had the chance to catch up with Yoni Lukoroinen, from Terrafame. So I'm uh, very pleased to be joined today by Yoni Lukaroinen, who's the CEO of Terrafame, Europe's largest nickel producer. I'll just run straight into the questions, but welcome. Thank you. Just kicking off today, many investors will probably remember your company as Tau Vivara Mining. You seem to have sorted out the operational issues that that company suffered from in that incarnation. Could you just give a quick summary of the developments you've made over the past few years to turn the company around? Our company, uh, Terra Farmer, was uh, founded indeed 2015, and, and uh, we took uh, over the old mine, which was uh, operated by Talvivara and went bankrupt. Uh, and for the last three and a half years, uh, we have been ramping up the operations. And that has been a very systematic work 
to make sure that our process is working in line uh, with how it was uh, originally designed to be operated. And uh, of course, we are extremely pleased that we have been able to increase the occupational safety level of the operations, the environmental safety level of the operations, and also that uh, we did reach the targeted uh, production volumes for our main products uh, being nickel and zinc in, uh, uh, during the course of the third quarter last year. And, and we have been able to maintain that. Uh, and what is the annual capacity that you're looking to produce? This operation was originally planned for 30,000 tons uh, nickel contained production volume, which means 7,500 tons per quarter. And like I said, at this level, we, we did reach late last year. So for people who aren't familiar with your operation, your processing, your production approach is pretty much unique. Might it be applicable to any other ore occurrences around the world? Or do you think it's just this one, really? It's true that our production is unique. Uh, as far as uh, I know, we are the only producer of uh, nickel uh, using the bio uh, heat leaching technology. And of course, that is very well suited uh, to our ore structure. And of course, uh, what is great in this process is that it is from the carbon footprint a very good way to, to produce uh, nickel. According to the studies, our process uh, is 25 to 40% uh, smaller carbon footprint than a traditional way of, of, of producing nickel. And, and to your question on whether this could be used in other places, so yes, it could, but uh, it of course depends very much on the ore type. So at this point in time, I think uh, it'd be fair to say that you're the EU's largest nickel producer and possibly in cobalt as well. What are your plans for production growth over the next few years? Do you intend to grow organically or would you look elsewhere? We do have a plan to grow organically to to some degree. So our current strategy is uh, that we are focusing uh, these operations here at uh, at Sotkamo in in this current place. Uh, We believe that uh, that we are able to increase the production from the current roughly 30,000 tons per annum to roughly 35,000 tons level. And this is uh, what we are focusing as we speak. On top of that, of course, uh, the main focus today is to further process our product uh, into the battery grade products. Okay, and we'll come back to that in a second. Finland's got quite interesting early stage nickel exploration projects. Would you look at any of them or, or anything abroad, or are you quite happy being a one asset producer? Currently, we are very happy on, on being the one asset producer. So, so our focus is very much to, to make sure that, that uh, this current operation is running uh, cost efficiently and, like I said, uh, looking for the further processing. So as we speak, uh, this is the, the focus. And you alluded to going uh, slightly downstream. You've recently made that decision to build a nickel sulfate plant. Could you talk us a little bit through thinking on, on that move? Yes, yeah, so uh, our current uh, main product, uh, which is uh, a mixed sulfide product containing nickel and cobalt, uh, is uh, actually a very good product uh, for further processing to nickel sulfate and cobalt sulfate. Actually, today, quite a big share of our production is, is sold uh, to battery application today. But this uh, refining is done uh, elsewhere by our customers and to a big degree in, in Asia. The core of our strategy is that uh, we would uh, like to to add value to our current product by doing the refining here at the same site. 
And of course, uh, that would be good for profitability of our company, but also for the European electrical vehicle customers. We believe that this step, which uh, would uh, enable a low carbon footprint uh, upstream supply for the battery manufacturers, would be welcome. You've previously said that nickel sulfate demand in Europe, or globally rather, is about 360,000 tonnes per annum now, could grow to around about 2.2 million tonnes per annum by 2030. Who are your major competitors likely to be in the nickel sulfate market going forward? Just coming back on on the numbers, so uh, yeah, there is a uh, nickel sulfate uh, demand today globally. A part of that uh, nickel sulfate demand is for the battery-grade applications. And, and indeed, like you said, uh, there is a different uh, external uh, estimation how much the market would, if only looking at the battery application, uh, over 100,000 tons nickel contained consumed for that market could go uh, grow to 10 times more, even up to 20 times. Oh, and, and then, of course, this question is very relevant. Uh, where, where is that product coming from? Of course, today there is already a big uh, part of uh, nickel sulfate produced from metallic nickel, so nickel brigades. And uh, most likely in, in this fast growth scenario, there will be a big demand, still a big part of the production, nickel sulfate production would be based on, 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 the, on the nickel brigade or metallic nickel for the processing. From a technical point of view, what grade of nickel sulfate is needed for battery applications? And is what you're looking to produce compatible with that grade or will it need further processing? The most efficient path to produce nickel sulfate, uh, at least in our opinion, is, is to make it from intermediate product like our type of MSP. That is is a, the most cost efficient uh, and then also the, from the carbon footprint point of view, a, the most uh, favorable way to, 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 to produce it. Of course, the other way is, is to in, indeed uh, to start from a class one high pure metallic uh, nickel product, and uh, which, which uh, for sure is also a good way to produce nickel sulfate. Uh, but indeed, uh, what we are now planning to do is, is uh, to, to, in a way to skip the metallic nickel step and, and, and going directly from, from our mixed uh, sulfide product into the battery-grade nickel sulfate and also to the battery-grade uh, cobalt sulfate. And in, in terms of purity, what sort of purity levels are we talking about here? We talk about uh, purity levels which are extremely pure. So if looking at nickel sulfate uh, market today, there is already uh, extremely tight uh, specifications for impurities. And uh, in our view, when the market is developing and uh, this new type of uh, technologies, you know, the, the more nickel-rich uh, cathode uh, technologies are, are winning share in, in the market, uh, then uh, the demand will be even increased from the current uh, specification. So that's why, why our production plant is uh, designed to, to meet uh, the most uh, t- toughest uh, requirements on the quality. So we talk about very, very small PPM spots per million of any impurities in the, in the product. There's obviously a fair amount of confusion in the market as to what constitutes a nickel product that's suitable for battery applications. 
talking about class one and class two nickel. Could you perhaps just um, talk about that in a little bit more detail for the listeners? Yeah, so if if looking at today, class one, class two uh, nickel products and and, and, uh, and different uh, feeds for different applications. Uh, so of course, uh, today the market is very much uh, dominated by the stainless steel end consumption. And for, for that, uh, of course, uh, different type of uh, nickel products are well suited. When looking then uh, these batteries for electrical vehicles, then of course, it means that, that uh, the demand for class one uh, nickel will be increasing. And then uh, in my personal opinion, there will be a clear split between, uh, let's say, the feed to the stainless steel industry and also then uh, feed for the battery application. And uh, most probably this will be also seen in, in, in the pricing in the market uh, in a due time. Obviously, the nickel prices has performed a little bit better this year, but it's still languishing off its highs. What do you think is the marginal price that's required for development of enough class one or high quality nickel supplies to match supply with likely demand from the battery sector? In this question, uh, I think uh, all the experts are in the uh, same opinion that at least uh, the price level of today, around about $12,000 per ton, is, is uh, not at all sufficient to attract uh, investments for the production. What is then the price level that, uh, or marginal price level that uh, would, uh, would be needed in order to, to see enough supply as the demand is growing? And uh, if looking at the current uh, technology basis, I, I think it would be fair to say that, uh, that the prices should be about $20,000 per ton. In the same time, there is, of course, a lot of uh, technology development going on in order to, to, to have more cost-efficient, uh, uh, less capex-demanding solutions uh, or technologies to produce uh, suitable nickel for, for battery application as well. So I, I believe that uh, over the time uh, we talk about uh, any prices between $15,000 to $25,000, somewhere in that range, uh, the, the prices would need to be in order to motivate enough uh, investments uh, for the nickel production. Excellent. So uh, very significantly above uh, current prices. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, that's brilliant. Thank you very much to uh, Yoni Lukaroinen, CEO of uh, Terrafarmi. Thank you, Matt. And that brings us to the end of our roundup for May. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Until next month. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.